Well, good morning. You may be seated. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. What exactly that life looks like living in the marvelous light is what we've been studying and learning about in 1 John. And a passage today is going to come from 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 through 24. So that's chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. And as you're flipping or opening your passages, your Bibles to that passage, uh, let's remind ourselves of where we've been so far. John has made some pretty clear statements about what it means to live in the light to live in truth, to live the authentic Christian life. And one of those statements came to us last week in 1 John 3, 4 through 6, where he says very explicitly, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And so John is repeating this uh, description of what it looks like to be an authentic Christian. An authentic Christian looks like somebody who doesn't have sin in their life. Of course, that's troubling for those of us who have sin in our life, but we recall John's pastoral reminder that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is Christ Jesus, the very one whose life we are by the power of the Holy Spirit emulating in sanctification. What John begins to do in chapter 3, though, is, is kind of explain why it is that the life of a believer should be absent sin. And one of the reasons that he gave last week is because we are now children of God. And as children of God, we've been adopted into a family, the family of God, and we've adopted with us a new way of doing things, a, a kind of a, a new life. We're in God's royal family. We're God's kids now. And so we do things the way that God does them. Once we were very far off. In fact, the Bible describes us as enemies of God, but the Spirit drew us near to Him. And through Christ's sacrifice and faith in Him, we have been made His brothers and sisters. We are siblings together, sons and daughters of the Father. We have a new birth certificate. We have a new address. We have a new family. We talked about last week, um, one of the beautiful pictures of what it looks like to be adopted in all of Scripture is the story of Mephibosheth, who wasn't a part of King David's family, was actually a member of the enemy of David, being Saul's grandson. But Mephibosheth, nevertheless, was invited to dine at the table with King David. But he was invited away from Lodabar, which was a impoverished area to Jerusalem, the center of Israel, and also to eat with the king. And so it is with us. When we are adopted into God's family, we no longer live in the Lodabar of sin. We live in Jerusalem with him. And we have a new status, which entitles us to new privileges by God's grace alone, which is to dine and to feast on the righteousness of Christ until he comes again. So the question we ask ourselves is why would we, with that invitation and that new status being true of us, remain in Lodabar, scrimping just to save or just to, to survive? Like why would we be like that petulant, sorry child that C.S. Lewis described who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
So to drive this point home, John last week differentiates between two types of people. There are the children of God, he says, and the children of the devil. There's God's kids, and then there's the devil's kids. By this, he said in verse 10, is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And in that moment of who doesn't love his brother, we're transitioning to today's text. But first, we have to remember, there is this either-or status in the world, John says. You are either a child of God or a child of the devil. And this summarizes everything that John has been saying up until this point. He's been telling us that if we are truly children of God, then we're going to do things the way that God's family does them. So we're going to know God. We're going to see him. We shall be like him. We'll live in light. We'll believe truth. We'll practice righteousness. But if we're children of the devil, we're going to be like the devil. We're not going to know God. We're not going to see him. We'll be lawless. We're going to live in darkness. We will be deceived by lies. And we will practice unrighteousness. Now, in this morning's text, John is going to add one more list to both of those. And this last element of what it means to be one of God's kids or one of the devil's kids is the capstone that holds all of these together. Read with me in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, our first passage this morning, first verse this morning. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. So on the heels of talking about what it means to be a child of God and a child of the devil, John reminds us of what's been preached by the apostles since the time of Jesus. You ought to love one another. You really want to know at the end of the day what differentiates a child of God from a child of the devil is love. So a child of God, in the end, is known primarily not by what they say, not by what they do, but the way in which they love. The way in which they love God, the way in which they love their neighbor, and specifically, John says here, the way in which we, being fellow believers, saints of God, kids of God, love one another. But this contrasts really sharply against the way that John is describing what it means to be a child of the devil. Keep in mind what Jesus has already taught in the Gospel of John in chapter 8. He is uh, confronting religious leaders in his day who are opposing him. And he cuts straight to the chase with them. In John chapter 8, 44, he looks at them and he says, you are of your father, the devil. Now that's something really hard to hear if you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe in the first century calling yourself sons of Abraham, representatives of Yahweh, the priests and high priests of Israel. Jesus says, you've got it wrong. You're not a child of God. You're a child of the devil. You are of your father, the devil. And your will, therefore, is to do your father's desire. Well, what is the, father, the, the, the devil's desire? Jesus answers, he was a murderer from the beginning. So this is getting really weighty, really heavy, really quick, what John is showing us. Stark contrast between life and now murder, between love and what could you guess? Hate. 1 John 3.12, we should not be like Cain, 
John says, who was of the evil one, in other words, a child of the devil, and murdered his brother. So that if, at the end of the day, the distinguishing primary, distinguishing factor between what makes a child of God is love, then what John is telling us is that the distinguishing primary factor that marks what it means to be a child of the devil is hate. So that children of God are known by their love of neighbor, but the children of the devil are known by their hatred for their neighbor. If you jump down to verse 15, he explains it even more. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And here, tying together, hate and murder together. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so we see John ending this comparative list between God's kids and the devil's kids. John's asking, do you really desire to live the authentic Christian life? And here's what you need to do. Love with the kind of holy family affection that leads to holiness on God's terms. Not just to love, but to love in the way that God defines. Because what we're about to find out in John's letter in the very next chapter It's not just that God loves, which he does, but that God is himself love, capital L, love. And that all true and pure love that we ever experience in this life is sourced from the very being of God himself and is derivative of that. And that any kind of love that doesn't align with God's holiness and his character and his being are distortions of what we are meant to experience. So much so that John gives us only two alternatives here. Life and love as kids of God or murder and hate as kids of the devil. And this language of family, children, kids, father, this is important because John continues to say that Hate has no place in God's family because hate has been tearing apart families since the very beginning. It's why the story of Cain and Abel, which he's bringing up, is so foundational to understanding what it means to love one's brother or to hate one's brother. But why? Like, it's foundational. Why bring that up now, John? Well, to answer that question... To understand why he's asking the question, we're bringing it up. We need to let him ask the question first and then go back to Genesis 4. John's question for us is this, why did he, being Cain, murder Abel? Well, to find out that answer, we need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, which is where the bulk of this story is. If you remember, Cain and Abel are the first two sons that Adam and Eve have after they're expelled from the Garden of Eden. Cain is born first, and then Abel is born, which means that Cain, as the bigger brother, has a responsibility for the life and safety and flourishing of his younger brother, Abel. It's a sacred responsibility for big brothers that usually begins by giving them noogies, right? And like hiding their things so that they can't find them, and then punching them on the arm, <laughs> but then eventually trying to be, a, for, for big brothers, right, a man that your younger brother would want to, to be, would want to emulate, right? 
That's as sacred responsibility as, as old as humanity itself. Let's see how well of a steward Cain is with it. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, a shepherd, and Cain, a worker of the ground, a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. In other words, he accepted it. But for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. In other words, he rejected it. So why would God accept Cain's sacrifice, but then reject, I'm sorry, why would God accept Abel's sacrifice, but then reject Cain's sacrifice? Some of the commentators and biblical scholars wanted to argue, well, Abel brought what God wanted. In other words, God wanted animal sacrifice. And Cain brought sacrifice from the field. In other words, like grain. And God was really more interested in animal sacrifice than he was in grain sacrifice. But I, I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Because later in Israel's story, what are we going to learn about the sacrifices God accepts? Does God accept animal sacrifice as a part of the Levitical system? Yes. Does God accept grain as part of a sacrifice as part of the Levitical system? Yes. yes. Okay. Not only is the answer yes, but he demands both. He demands animals and he demands grain, right? So that has much less to do with it than what we learn later through the prophets about what God really desires when it comes to sacrifice. So at the end of the day, you can give God a piece of meat or you can give him grain, but what he's really after is your heart. He wants your desires, your affections, your loves. That's what he wants. And so if you put that back on Genesis 4, we begin to, we can tease out exactly why God accepted Abel's and rejected Cain's sacrifice. And the text itself even alludes to it. It tips its cards a little bit here. It's not what they brought to God. It's why they brought what they brought to God. And you can tell that Abel brought sacrifice to God in a posture of selflessness in awe and reverence for God because the text says that Abel gave from his firstborn the fat portions. Now, firstborn is your prized animal in the ancient Near East, right? And then the fat portions of the animal are what you really want when it comes to like steak, right? You want it to be marbled. This is the filet mignon, the, the, the choice cut of meat here. So not only is Abel bringing uh, a sacrifice of his most prized among the flock, but he's bringing the best from the prized in his flock to God. But when you look at what Cain brought, the text just says he brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. In other words, Cain like looked at his watch. He's like, oh yeah, I owe Yahweh something. He goes into the field. He goes, this'll do. And then he walks up and then gives it to God. He withheld quality for God in exchange for his quantity. God sees right through those sacrifices. And he favors Abel's sacrifice because Abel actually didn't sacrifice firstborn choice meat. He sacrificed his heart, his desires to God, and Cain withheld them. Now, Cain should have been aware of what was happening. He, he could have taken this moment of rejection 
for self-reflection and for repentance, but that's not what, what happened. In fact, Cain became bitter and angry towards Abel, so much so that God warned him, sin is about to rule you. But in allowing this bitterness to overtake him and to frame it in 1 John and bring it back a bit, Cain became less like God and more like his father, the devil. Cain forgot God. He didn't see God's ways. He, he, he became lawless. He plotted uh, to, to do unrighteous things. He was deceived. I could, you can almost hear the enemy whispering in Cain's ears, Abel's your younger brother. He's not been around longer than you. How You toiled day and night to pull that out of the field. And God's gonna accept him and not you? And eventually, we know how this story ends. Verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And it's so insidious, I, we miss it. I think that's so insidious. Think about it like this. Um, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. The big brother who has the responsibility to care for his younger brother leveraged all of the trust that his kid brother had in him. And they went to the field and Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. What a terrible story. One with a pretty obvious lesson. Brotherly love is impossible wherever there is jealousy. And so back to John's original question. Why did he being Cain kill him, Abel? John's assuming everything that we just talked about, you know that. You know that God preferred Abel's sacrifice because Abel sacrificed his desires in a selfless manner and Cain did not. Now, John's taking it up a notch. He's asking the next question after that. Why'd he murder him? It's because his own, Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers, Abel's, were righteous. That the deeds were actually sourced in the heart to begin. And so, Cain, John says, was not a child of God. He was a child of the devil. And you can tell because he's angry and he's a murderer who was jealous of the children of God. So putting all of this together, his question for us, for the church that he's writing and for the church today is pretty simple. Why are you so surprised when the world, Cain, hates the children of God? Abel. Again, it seems like a strange question to ask right now on the heels of like God's kids and the devil's kids and Cain and Abel, but it makes sense because when you think about the church to whom John is writing, churches, uh, they're being oppressed at this time, persecuted even. It was sporadic. It depended on where you lived in the Roman Empire and when, if you ever faced persecution, but certainly you were being marginalized. People didn't like Christians. The Jews didn't like them. The, the, the Romans didn't like them. More concerning, though, for John in this letter is not the persecution so much as it is the wooing towards heresy. They're being wooed by false teaching. And the false teaching we're going to learn a lot about in 2 John. The false teaching is any confession that denies Jesus came in the flesh. They're being pressured by their culture 
to accept a cultural norm which cannot conceive of matter, our physical, material, flesh and blood bodies, is something that the gods, let alone God himself, would want anything to do with. It's called Gnosticism. The flesh is yucky. We're these soul cocoons that have to metamorphize into a soul so we can go and join God in heaven later and leave all of the material behind. So, you can almost hear the churches being asked, your own scripture says that God is spirit, right? And they said, well, yeah, we believe that God is spirit. Then how could he send his son to become flesh? That's disgusting. It's so wrong. How could you believe that? To this Gnostic culture in the first century, it was wrong, even immoral, to think of God that way. There was a, there was a moral quality attached to you if you believed that God came in the flesh through his son. And it wasn't good. These beliefs were ignorant. How could you be so bigoted? How can you say something so offensive about God? How can you be so immoral in your theological convictions? And so the churches were like, I don't know. And the culture is wooing them into heresy that denies Christ came in the flesh. But if you deny that Christ came in the flesh, you deny that he redeemed the flesh. And if you deny that he redeemed the flesh, then there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, what does Paul say? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Our hope, our faith is, is hopelessness, right? You know, what has been, will be. What has been done, will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Churches in John's day were being wooed by heresy. Are we not being wooed by heresy today? Not necessarily Gnosticism. I don't think anybody has a problem saying that there was a man, physical flesh and blood, who lived in the first century, walked around and taught religious things named Jesus. They might have a problem with him being God. So it's the exact opposite problem in the first century, but that's not one that I think we should concern ourselves with at the moment. Because there's another type of heresy, a false teaching that we as churches today reading John's letters are being wooed towards. In fact, churches in the first century were being wooed towards as well. You can read about it in Revelation 2, verse 20. Those churches and our churches today being wooed by false teachings and seductions of God's servants to practice sexual immorality. That churches like in the first century and today are being pressured to accept cultural norms, which cannot conceive of our bodies, our sexuality as something that belongs to anybody but ourselves and for any other reason but our own pleasure, let alone God and let alone for his holiness and his glory. And so we're being asked, your own scriptures say God is love, right? And we affirm, of course we believe that. Then why would he deny me this woman or this man or these lovers or that identity or that experience or myself as my, my, my expressive individual self. It seems to our culture so wrong and, and even immoral to think of sexuality that way. So how could Christians be so ignorant in our beliefs or bigoted in our views or immoral in our convictions? The first century was being wooed by Gnosticism. We're being wooed by sexual immorality. And so John says, continuing in verse 13 through 14, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
to that first church, don't be surprised when the Gnostics are beside themselves and then frustrated and then eventually hate you for not letting go of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh and that Gnosticism is wrong. And to, uh, today, for us, he could be asking a very similar question. Don't be surprised when the world first gets frustrated with you, then angry, then hates you, when you cannot let go of the sexual ethic that is given to us throughout Scripture. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Who does, whoever does not love abides in death. So the world hates holiness for the same reason that Cain hated Abel. Abel's love of God resulted in good works, holiness, righteousness, godliness, purity, which exposed Cain's heart for where it was, bent against God. But here, strangely enough, is actually a place where we can find a bit of assurance of faith. Because you could ask yourself, <clears throat> well, how do I know that I'm living the authentic Christian life? And the answer that you can draw from this text is, well, is life easy for you in the world? Or do you face resistance, opposition, bitterness, and anger? Never once in Scripture are you ever recommended to go looking for trouble. You're, God is not going to tell you to go into incite the world's anger against you. John never advocates to go look for the world's anger. But the only thing Abel did to incite Cain's rage was to worship God well. That's all it took. That was sufficient. And so John is telling the churches, he's telling us, look, if you are worshiping God well, don't be surprised if the world asks you, to come to the field with it for a chat. In fact, if life is too easy, if it's too comfortable, if it's too frictionless, that might actually be an indication that the world doesn't even see you as one of God's kids to begin with. So let's consider what it would look like to be an Abel today and pick up that theme of shepherding. Abel is a shepherd, right? And his sacrifice to God that came from his flock Probably you're never going to have the kind of experience that Abel had literally sacrificing a sheep and then having your older brother literally get mad at you for it, right? Any of you shepherds that own sheep didn't think so, right? Even if you were and you sacrificed a sheep and you're like nervously looking around to make sure people are cool with this, I would be like, are we, are we eating that or what are you doing about it? I'll pay for it, right? We live in a completely different world than the ancient Near Eastern culture. But one thing that hasn't changed in shepherding is this, the, the core purpose of shepherding, which is to take responsibility for a flock, which is to protect, to steward, to watch over responsibilities. That every Christian, by that definition, every Christian is a steward. Your stewardship of your life, we can break it up into three things in specific, your heart, your mind, your body. God has asked you to be a shepherd, a steward, a good steward over those three things. And out of those three things come so much, right? I wanna talk about three in specific. From the heart, you could say you have a sheep called ambition in your flock. 
from your mind, you have, a, you have a sheep called discernment in your flock. And then from your body, as I alluded to earlier, you have a sheep called sexuality in your flock. And God wants you to shepherd, to steward, to watch over, to protect, and in his own way, actually cause to flourish and grow your ambition, your discernment, your sexuality. So question is, what are you going to do with them? First, the heart. The world's going to deceive you to try to say, you know what? With that sheep right there, ambition, your ambition should be to conquer social spaces and to amass power for your own glory. That's why you're really interested in a, a big persona in digital spaces on social media. It's why, uh, it's why you're really interested in climbing the ladder of your corporation or why you're interested in politics. It's not wrong to have social media. It's not wrong to have a job. It's not wrong to be in politics. But you need to check your heart on why. Because the world is saying, you need to do those things to promote you and amass power around yourself so that you can be in control. God says, that's not a very good way to be a shepherd over that sheep. What you need to do is you need to look at that sheep of ambition and to bring the best of it to me and to sacrifice it to me and to say, not my will, but thy will be done. It's not wrong to have ambitions, but you must sacrifice them before God's will and to let the Holy Spirit discern for you where are you supposed to go, what are you supposed to do, how are you supposed to do it, how far are you supposed to go. To say, I wanna be more like you and less like me in my social spaces. I want more of your power in the world, not less. I don't want any power. I mean, if there's any lesson you're going to learn from the, the incarnation of Jesus, from the descent of him sitting at the right hand of the Father to a manger, to a cross, to a burial, it's this. True power is found in giving it up. But the world hates that. Absolutely hates that. Because it whispers to them, maybe the way you're going about this is wrong. Maybe the way you're going around conquesting in digital spaces, or literally conquesting on a continent right now in Europe, it's a fool's errand and leads in death and misery. What about the mind? The world says only prudes and bigots are careful to firewall the content they digest to protect their mind, to discern what is true and good and beautiful. Just let it all in. If you're gonna be a part of our culture, you need to ingest it all and be like us. The gospel says something different. You could desire by the power of the Holy Spirit to heed Paul's advice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what this looks like is not subjecting that sheep of discernment to whatever comes your way. And to be okay with those moments in polite discussion, to decline, either because you don't wanna talk about it or because you're just genuinely unaware of what's going on in the news cycle or uh, what the latest MA HBO series has to say about who you are, what you're supposed to desire in life, or super popular podcasts. Again, 
art, aesthetics, music, film, podcasts, all these things, nothing wrong with them per se. In other words, in and of themselves. But as believers, we are called to weigh what is good against what is ugly, what is true against what is false, what is good against what is bad. The world's gonna hate that because eventually you're going to have to say, I actually think that's ugly. And I like this over here because it's beautiful. I actually think that's dark. And I like this over here because it's light. You're a bigot for thinking that. And then finally, sheep called your sexuality in this flock that you shepherd. The world's going to say of your body, sex isn't merely what you do. Sex is actually who you are. And who you are is actually defined by you. But that is not the way that God has called us to shepherd our sexuality. He says, bring to me even the most intimate part of who you are and subject it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Who created us male and female, who gifted sex to enjoy within the safe and loving confines of healthy marriage, and who pleads with us to utilize sex to bring oneness between a man and a wife, forbidding others' entry, whether that be physically, digitally, or emotionally. The world hates that. They hate it. But do you know who's not going to hate the way that you bring these sheep to sacrifice? God, who will gladly accept the sacrifice you've given over of your ambition and your mind and of your sexuality. He delights in love-inspired, selfless obedience to his holy and perfect and life-giving will. But when you do, and you're sacrificing in the way that God has called us to. Don't be surprised when the world hates you, John says. It's jealous. It doesn't know why, but it is. And that jealousy turns towards hatred. But John actually tells us precisely why that jealousy is there to begin with. He tells us this in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. But you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So there it is. There it is. John tells us, why does the world hate holiness? It's because, John says, the world is spiritually dead. And that any hint or evidence of eternal life that's given to us by the Spirit and manifested in our lives through sacrifice, through good John says, that's what gets the world jealous. It wants to be alive, but it's dead. But it wants to be alive on its own terms, not according to the author of life. Now, I want to make a short and almost tangential point here. This is like a footnote. I felt pressed to make this point when I came across it in studying this week. Um, John's told us the world's gonna hate you. Who is you? Little children, children of God. So let's remember that familial, we're brothers and sisters, we're God's kids. And that hate has no place in the church, has no, no hate among siblings. So this is the, 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 the small point I wanna make. With so much hate in our life and with God's disdain for hate among his kids, 
Now, why, why do you hate yourself? I really feel like there's one, at least one person that needs to hear it in one of the two services. And let me explain what I mean. Um, if you believe truly what John has said about you, that you are God's child now, how can you possibly hate yourself? I know why. I know, I know why. It's, be, it's because you hate yourself because of your past. You hate yourself because the sin you committed, the, the hurt or the harm that you caused. But if you've truly repented and you know that you are forgiven, it's just that you hate yourself for what you've done. Why? It, whoever you are, it, God's ready for you to take it to the next level. Because if you're a child of God forgiven, you don't have the right to hate any of God's children and you're one of those kids. Like God's love is so deep that if you are a child of God and you're not allowed to hate children of God, you are not allowed to hate yourself. You need to be enveloped in God's love. You need to stop hating yourself because as John's telling us, whoever hates is a murderer and whoever hates himself or herself, being a child of God is risking spiritual suicide. So stop. God's love is so deep it never ends, which is one of the great things about him being infinite. When we say that God is love, there's no limit to that. Go into that next level of his love. Stop hating yourself. He's forgiven you. God loves you. You're his son. You're his daughter. God loves his kids, even you, especially you. He's calling us to love like he does. And the more we love like he does, the more we become like him, selflessly glorifying his greatness in all areas of our life. And that's actually the next point that John's going to make. First John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. I don't know if it's providence or coincidence or what it is, but this verse is really uh, tightly connected to another John 3.16, right? Like when you read that, love, laying down his life for us, it sounds like John 3.16. So like John didn't put the you know, numbers in here, right? He wasn't, he didn't get to the end. He's like, chapter five, everyone who, right? No, um, numbers and, and that kind of stuff came later in church history. Numbers are, the, the chapters and verses are not part of the original. It's not even part of the copies of the copies of the copies of the copies, right? But it just so happens that John 3.16 and, and 1 John 3.16 kind of like harmonize with each other. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But what 1 John 3.16 does for John 3.16, it takes it up a notch. It says, John says, the kind of love with which we strive to love with is the kind of love that we see from Jesus. So if we're, if we're God's kids, if we're gonna love like him, here's the way we're gonna do it. We're gonna be the kind of people that send, that give, that sacrifice, that see others before self. And he gives a practical example. If anybody has the world's goods, in other words, you've got money, you've got resources, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's abide loving him? The answer, of course, is it doesn't. It can't, because God's love is selfless, not selfish. So it's impossible for God's love to abide in somebody who's selfish, because God's love is selfless. 
And in that selfishness, this closed heart inhibits good works. It even blunts our right beliefs about the situation. And I think that's briefly the, the point that John is bringing up here. It's not that the person in this example didn't see or know the need. It's not like they lacked resources or they didn't aware that there was a problem. They knew, so their beliefs were there. They could, they have the world's goods, but they didn't want to. Their heart was closed to the situation. And this point, uh, among all of those made in John's letter, to me, ranks among one of the most important things to hear in our culture today. And one that is going to be developed throughout chapter four as well. At the end of the day, living the authentic Christian life does not come from believing rightly. It's not about how orthodox, how much truth you know. Is uh, truth important? Is believing rightly important? Yes, over and over and over again, we're being told, don't be deceived, the Gnostics are wrong. But that's not at the core of the authentic Christian life. Also at the core of the authentic Christian life is not doing rightly. It's not doing good things only. In the end, no matter how squared away in truth you are and no matter how able you are to do good works, if your heart isn't in it, you're not going to want to do you're not going to want to allow your actions to be formed and informed by the truth that you know. And this is John's very next point, verses 18 through 20. And in this passage, this short little passage is packed so much. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are the truth or that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. This passage could be some of the most densest and marvelously rich in all of 1 John. And if you're looking for something to meditate on this week, I would recommend this. There's seven things I want to draw our attention to and then kind of hone in on a couple of those things. First, notice how the passage reminds us of our identity. Who are we? First things first. Little children, God's kids, children of God. John's always gonna remind you of your identity. Who are you? I'm a child of God. Second, what's your purpose? Your purpose, little children, is to love. Okay, well then, how am I supposed to love? He gives a negative instruction on how not to love and then a positive instruction on how to love. The negative instruction on how not to love is he says, let us not love in word or talk. Essentially, let's not just talk about our love only. The positive instruction then is to love in word, I'm sorry, in deed and in truth. And in this, we get an assurance of faith. He says, by this, by what? By loving, not merely in word, but also in deed and in truth, we shall know that we are of the truth. And the proof of this insurance, the receipt that you know you are of the truth, is conviction in your heart against sin. Whenever our hearts condemn us, that means we are of the truth. And how do I know all of this can be possible? John just throws two attributes of God out there. He is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Fancy words for these are he's sovereign and he's omniscient. He's the one convicting you of sin, 
He's the one creating a new heart of flesh where there was a heart of stone in your chest. And he already knows about that sin anyway, so why don't you just come forward and confess it? Stop hiding in the bushes. But of everything in this rich passage that caught my attention this week, it was verse 20. Highlight this, underline it, memorize it. Super easy to memorize. God is greater than our hearts. So true, so important. It's the key to unlocking this whole passage here. John says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And in doing so, he's saying, you've got to let God have lordship over your heart so that your love is not merely your words, but that it is also deeds and it is also truth. Love, speech, action. Let's tease these out of this text. First, John is following what Christ earlier called the core of the entire law. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the objects of our love ought to be toward God and toward neighbor, toward the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and toward all image bearers around us, even the ones you don't like, even your enemies. Second, how we love God and neighbor. John says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or action. He's not saying that we exclude word or talk. He's saying that word and talk can't be the only thing that we love with. If we only talk about how we love one another, then our deedless love is dead. You've been there, you've experienced it, we've all done it. Somebody tells you they're having a hard time and you cross your arms uncomfortably, you're like, oh man, it's tough, love you buddy. Love, love you sis. So sorry, Tay, gotta get the kids out of, Mars kids were, all right, I'll see you though, right? Right? What kind of love is that? <laughs> That's the kind of love John say, like, it's not wrong to tell you, your brothers or sister in Christ, that you love them, but how do you prove it to them? By saying, I'm here for you, I'm ready for you. Do you want to get together this week? How can I bear your burden with you? So how we love God is with both our word and talk and our actions or our deeds. Now, in a perfect world, that's all we should need. John should just be like, you know the core of the law, right? Okay, then love God and neighbor through your speech and love God and neighbor through your action, go. But in a fallen world, remember, John has already warned us, little children, let no one deceive you. We live in a fallen world. We can't just be told to love in speech and action according to our own desires, our own ways. Because if John is warning us against deception, that means that even the way we love God and neighbor is subject to distortion through deception. And so we do things like this. I will love God through my speech and actions in my own way. There's no need for me to meditate on God's word or marinate in his truth for prayer and repentance. It's just me and God, we're good. And I am gonna love my neighbor according to speech and action in my own way, to be present but never call her to repent, to be loving but never warn him away from sin, 
to be kind, but never brave enough to say, friend, that way leads to sorrow and death. The world is lying to you. That's not a sacrificial love. That's not the kind of love with which Abel loved God. It's not the kind of love that is willing to sacrifice the friendship for the sake of the friend's soul. A true love that's sacrificial has to cost something. It doesn't cost much to be present or loving or kind. It costs a lot to call somebody to be repentant of their sin. So what's the solution, John says? If the way we love God and neighbor can go off the rails in speech, in an action, John says we're missing something if we don't buttress these things between truth. You need the guardrails of truth so that way when your love of God begins to go off the rails or your love of neighbor, the way you speak to them or the action that you take in their life begins to go all cattywampus and crazy, truth pings it back to the center, right? I used this silly, but I think effective analogy this morning, so I'm gonna use it again. I'm not a very good bowler. My wife is a much better bowler than I am. When I bowl, I'm so glad if I break 60. That is a good day for me. The reason I'm not very good at bowling is because for some reason, some fool put two gutters on the left and the right side of the lane. So how am I supposed to knock down all 10 pins? Okay, the analogy is this. When you love in, in your speech, in your deed, it's like letting go of the ball. The second you let go of the ball, physics takes over, right? You can't just like will the ball to get back on course. It's done, you've let it go. In loving your neighbor well, knocking a strike, God's saying, I'm calling you to knock strike after strike after strike when it comes to loving your neighbor. Truth are the two little kids' bumper things that help me get not 80, but 120. Truth is what keeps the way that I, the way I love in my speech and the way I love in my actions back to, to the greatest possible outcome while loving my neighbors. Truth in scripture, truth reminded to us by fellow saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, truth that we have memorized and, and have marinated on, truth that, that we have sealed to our heart through his word. The solution is love with the guardrails of truth. Let us not love in word and talk, but indeed in, in truth. So that way when our loves become distorted, they bounce back and they get us on the right track. So now the questions we, we ought to ask ourselves take on a new and a kind of virtuous form. Instead of asking, how do I love God? We should be asking, what does true love of God look like in my life? What is true love? Not how can I love my friend, but what does it look like to truly love my friend in this moment? And those are difficult questions, aren't they? A true love of God is going to cost something to submit to him, everything under his lordship, your mind, your ambition, your body, your desires, that whole flock behind you that he has called you and asked you to steward. But that's okay because God is greater than your heart. He knows your desires. He's got something better in mind. 
And a true love of neighbor is going to point all of them towards all of him, all of their minds, all of their ambitions, their bodies, their desires, because God is greater than their heart too. And one of the greatest blessings in life is to live free in the light from deception in a clear conscience, knowing that you are synchronized in God's will, even if the world like Cain hates you. It's a sweet blessing to know you have a clean conscience in a life spent in the loving fellowship of the triune God and those that love the same as you do. And so for that reason, what I want to do is I want to close on John's own words here. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Note that you're not going to have confidence before the world. You'll have confidence before God. The world is passing away. The Father of life is eternal. Who do you want confidence before? And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We're taking care of that flock behind us. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for the incredibly convicting and yet assuring letter of 1 John. We thank you that your spirit inspired this very pastoral letter from the apostle to speak to us truth and reality, that there are only two ways, light and dark, truth and deception, righteousness and unrighteousness. There are only two identities, God's kids or the devil's kids. And there are only two ways of living, by love that leads to life, by anger that leads to death. Father, we admit more often than not that we have sinned and have identified more with Cain than with Abel. And in fits of jealous rage, we've sought to destroy those who are merely worshiping you in true selflessness and humility. Father, we do not want to destroy that. We want to become it. And so in our repentance and through the power of your blood and the resurrection of your son, let us be a people who steward and shepherd well all that you have called us to love with, heart, soul, mind, and strength to submit them to your lordship and by the power of the Holy Spirit because we've given a new life and a new identity as your children to pursue the authentic Christian life of holiness and righteousness and good even if the world hates it. Father, let us stand in confidence before you knowing that we have been hidden in the righteousness of your son and born again by the power of your spirit. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.